Our national electricity framework and market is set up as a technical exercise. This affects people. This transition is a social transition and uh, we need to get that right. We don't want the renewable sector to make the same uh, mistakes as coal did. So where we are producing energy is changing and it's already happening. In the political debates and the public debates about climate change and energy, how we get our energy and where our energy comes from and where we're going to get it in the future has been completely absent from, from popular discussion. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. I'd like to acknowledge today's event that I am joining you all from the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and to acknowledge the ancestral lands that we are all joining from and that I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for joining us today for the launch event of the Renewables in Rural Australia Community Experiences in New South Wales and the Case for More Credible and Coordinated Development Report. Today's event is hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research, and the Australia Institute, one of Australia's most influential public policy think tanks. My name is Susan Park. I'm a Professor of Global Governance here at the University of Sydney and Research Lead at the Sydney Environment Institute for the Unsettling Resources Project that investigates the dependence of our energy use and systems on conventional energy and the global shift to renewables. Today's event is part of the Sydney Environment Institute series, Communities on the Frontline, which explores the impacts of the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy on a range of local communities. I'm very excited to chair this event today. We have four authors of today's of the report, and we have uh, distinguished guests, members of the New South Wales Parliament to respond to today's, uh, to the report. This is, of course, an incredibly important time in Australia's history. We have recently had a federal election where the new Labor government identified that Australia will become a renewable energy superpower. We are also in the midst of an energy crisis for uh, large parts of this country. So it is my um, uh, extreme delight to be able to launch this report uh, that is a major investigation into how regional communities see this energy transition. It is a 100-page report and it is a collaboration between the Australia Institute and the authors that are part of the Sydney Environment Institute. It is the first major study of the social impact of large-scale renewable energy in Australia. The report is focused on New South Wales as it will host the National Pilot Renewable Energy Zone, which is the template for the rest of Australia to follow. What I'm going to do is to introduce these speakers as I ask them questions. We will then go to our members of parliament to respond throughout and then have a final summary before we go to question and answer. So I'd like to go now to our first speaker, Linda Connor, who is an Emeritus Professor of Anthropology in the School of Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney. She uses ethnographic methods to investigate the social and cultural transformations in rural and regional communities experiencing large-scale renewable energy development. Linda, I'd like to turn to you now to provide us with an idea of the origins of the project, what the purpose of the research is and how you did it. Thank you, Susan, and good morning, everyone. 
Australian energy production is still dominated by coal and gas. And as we have seen in the last few days, fossil fuels are huge components of our export industries, contributing to the crisis in electricity supply that we are experiencing now. The authors of the report have quite a few years of research experience in communities living with coal mining and gas extraction in New South Wales and other states. So when the Australian energy market operator published its first infrastructure development plan called the Integrated System Plan in 2018 for a clean energy transition, we were pretty interested in how it would pan out for the target communities. Development of this magnitude is social, economic and environmental as much as technological. Part of the um, AEMO plan, Australian Energy Market Operator Plan, was the creation of renewable energy zones as the most efficient uh, way to expand clean energy production. The low hanging fruit is the large scale wind and solar farms near existing high voltage transmission lines, cheapest for developers, quick results for consumers, government and the planet. New lines being built will connect more projects, ramping up future generation capacity. We focused on New South Wales, which was ahead of the game with the state government's Renewable Energy Action Plan in 2013. A lot of large scale wind and solar was already operating or under construction in the three regions that became the first reses, renewable energy zones, in 2018. We chose to study the Central West Arana and the New England reses, and Rika will say more on this when she speaks. There are a lot of big numbers in the national energy scenario, tens of gigawatts of electricity, thousands of kilometres of high voltage transmission lines, thousands of turbines, millions of solar panels, billions of dollars in private and public investment. All this is being built on rural lands. This clean energy future raises many questions for social research. Rural Australia is not an empty space awaiting an energy revolution. Productive, diverse and culturally rich ways of life are long established in farming communities, Aboriginal lands and towns. It's clear that local responses to the rollout of large-scale renewables are going to be really important in determining the success of the RES model. Our research questions are focused on understanding the changes that are occurring in host communities, as well as analyzing the distribution of benefits and the potential or actual problems that are occurring. The primary method used in this study was ethnographic or community-based research in the renewable energy zone localities to understand the changes in everyday life, environment and economy that renewable energy is bringing. We used a variety of methods uh, to achieve diversity and depth of data, and they are listed on the slide. We've presented a lot of our analysis based on locals' comments and opinions in their own words as much as possible. And some of those um, you'll, you'll hear later in the presentations. This approach allowed us to combine our social science thinking with the valuable knowledge gained from community participants in order to make recommendations for equitable 
timely and well-coordinated policy for people in the renewable energy zones. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda, for outlining that for us. I'd like to now go to the second one of the, one of the um, second authors on the report, which is Rika Aikinen, um, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney, who compares renewable energy reverse auction designs. And she has experience as a wind farm project developer and is dedicated to working towards equitable energy transition. Rika, could you give us a sense? I mean, we've just heard... Uh, from Linda, that obviously we're talking about renewable energy in rural communities. This is not an empty space. Could you give us an idea of what this means in terms of the changing spatial dynamics for uh, energy generation? Um, so thanks, Susan. Um, yeah, as you as you said, so while Linda and Beck were busy driving around the countryside, I did a lot of the mapping um, and gathering data to understand in numbers and locations what is happening in rural New South Wales. Um, so to get some context, we wanted to understand the magnitude of change. Um, so I've picked a few graphs here and maps from the report to share with you today. So on this slide, um, first we had a look of wind and solar development pipeline in New South Wales to look where the energy is produced compared to the current coal power regions. Um, so this graph shows that besides the fuel type, the region is completely changing. Um, currently, the vast majority of electricity is produced in Hunter, some in eastern end of central west, some in the coast, but that is not where the current development applications and new development is. So we can see that central west and northern inland, which is approximately where this New England rest uh, renewable energy zone is, um, those are the upcoming new areas, um, along with some solar in Riverina and some, some in other areas as well. Um, so where we are producing energy is changing and it's already happening, um, as we can see from, from these illustrations of generators in New South Wales and how they are located in the past six decades. We're seeing that only, a only in a few places up to the 80s and once we're moving um, much more dis dispersed generations in the 2000s. Um, and we are, however, only in the beginning of the spatial shift. Um, as we can see um, on the next slide, there's this um, Australian um, energy market operator, AMO, Draft ISB, um, which is an integrated system plan. And they have a to, um, done a forecast last year. Um, so in, in, as we can see from back in 2018, when we first started this project, as Linda said, we could see that there already was some built solar and wind in, in Central West and New England, but most of all, huge amount of interest. Um, and this guided the um, physicians to head to these areas to talk to people how they are experiencing this changing energy landscape. And the last point I wanted to make about the spatial shift um, is that while these certain regions seem to have many proposals, areas like Central West Orana and New England are huge. So um, while there will be concentrations of wind and solar farms in these regions, but large portions will be less favorable for various reasons, such as being far away from substation or power line or not having enough resource or some other, other constraints. So not all central West Orana and New England will be full of solar panels and, and turbines. So when you see pictures like the, um, the previous um, AMOS um, integrated system plan, that's not what it means. This was the last point that I wanted to make about this um, changing um, 
changing infrastructure um, is besides changing where the electricity is produced and what it is, we also see that who is producing energy is changing. Um, so we had a look who owns and has development applications for generation projects in New South Wales. Um, and don't try to read this as many, many uh, names here. It's in the, in the report if someone wants to have a, have a closer look. Um, but this is a graph of generation capacity per developer. And we can see a few big coal power plants there at the top, those gray, gray long bars, um, which are owned by a handful of big companies. Um, and once that coal retires, disappears in the next few decades, we can see that there are dozens, if not hundreds of new producers stepping in, and they are not the same ones as the current big ones. Um, and this has multiple implications, which we will not go in deeper now. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that this also means many different ways of doing things, many different styles of arrangements with the landholders and the community. And also it means that with many separate projects, the cumulative impacts are much harder to assess than before in the energy space in New South Wales. Thank you. Thank you, Rika. That's really important. I'd like to turn now to Joe McGear, who's a, a member of parliament and is the independent candidate for the state seat of Wagga Wagga. Uh, Joe has worked in regional New South Wales for more than 30 years, first in emergency medicine and then in health and hospital management, followed by time in university administration before entering politics. Joe, what are your concerns and the concerns of your constituencies in this transition? Look, thanks very much and, and uh, thank you very much. Can I just congratulate the Australian Institute of the Sydney Environment Institute on this report because it's highlighting an important issue for my communities and I think for large sections of regional uh, New South Wales and I suspect Australia. Um, look, Linda made the point that the rural landscape is not empty space. Uh, it's full of people and communities with long traditions and we are talking about a major reform here in terms of transmission and uh, renewable energy developments. Uh, and Rika has, Rika has outlined how extensive the change is, both in terms of where it's taking place and the fact that the players are often international market-driven conglomerates, and that is a big factor. Um, look, I've experienced this down here in my communities, and my communities have experienced this in a couple of ways. First of all, we've had uh, a, a huge controversy over the building of transmission lines for Snowy Hydro, uh, and that is ongoing, and that's with Transgrid, and that's affected uh, farmers throughout my electorate. Um, and secondly, we've had a number of solar developments already take place that have been problematic for the community, and we are having more solar developments. We call them solar factories down here. We see them as industrial developments. Uh, that's the feeling in the community about them. Um, I think I, I could talk for hours about this, I won't, but I just want to highlight three key issues that I think are important in terms of getting the social licence right. The first is consultation, the second is compensation, and the third is location. And in consultation, first of all, it's not only consultation at the start, that is very important, but it's ongoing consultation, and it involves respect and it involves dealing with neighbours and the community. Now, with the Transgrid, our Transgrid program that we had here for HumeLink, the consultation, I mean, basically you outlined the, the national plan that got right, laid out. Uh, that was fine. Transgrid came in and said, well, this is where we're going to build the lines. 
the consultation process with the farm landowners and communities here was just nothing short of appalling. Uh, it was disrespectful and it was based on the assumption, frankly, that if the farm, the landowners didn't give up the land, they would be acquired, the land would be acquired. I mean, that was the mindset from the outset. Um, and uh, I just heard countless uh, stories from landowners here about the way they were treated. They were very distressing. In the end, to give Transgrid its credit, they had an independent review done by Rob Stowe, the firm, former director of Fair Trading, scathing report, uh, brief report worth reading. Transgrid have it on their website, but really uh, a report that outlined how to rather than how not to do consultation. And I think it's an incredibly valuable document. And to Transgrid's credit, they have re- they basically completely reset the community engagement strategy. Hasn't been easy for them. And it has meant some difficult conversations. But there are some very strong, good ideas coming out of that. Um, the other point in terms of consultation is a lot of these companies are overseas companies. Uh, we have one near us uh, that's run from Greece. Uh, I want a media statement, you've got to wait till the people in Greece approve it for 24 hours later. And that was the company that, dig up, uh, that dug up the Aboriginal artefacts and got a $1,500 fine for it. Uh, so that's the sort of experience people he- have here of that sort of consultation. And the point about that is that I meet with representatives of our company and they tell me how concerned they are. But the reality is that they are operating for a international company with very limited connections to the community. They will change position. The owner of the project will change. So one project at Bowman was developed by one company, sold to another, sold to another. That is not uncommon. And communities know that, and they know that the people that they're dealing with now will definitely not be the people they're dealing with in five or 10 years' time. And trust is an important part in the community. And the market, you know, the market in these companies, there's not trust. So the government has a role here in ensuring consultation now and then ongoing accountability and consultation. And that's about respect. So Rika made the point about these international companies coming in, and that's the reality. The second issue I wanted to talk about is just compensation. Um, It needs to be fair. It needs to involve neighbours. It's about benefit sharing. There's a lot of talk that these renewable energy projects drought-proof properties. And I think with wind farms, there's some very good arguments for that. But solar, the solar... uh, factories that we say, the 300, 600 hectare solar factories. Well, the owner of the land who may not live there uh, will get the benefit. The neighbours who are looking at this industrial development will get nothing. Uh, That, I think, is a problem. It's certainly not benefit sharing in any way. And can I just add, with transmission lines, we've done some analysis on this. Wind farmer will get the equivalent of about half a million uh, income from a wind farm over a set period of time. The equivalent for someone hosting a tower for transmission was $50,000 and loss of... Uh... So there is a need to recognise this and I think the New South Wales government is working on it. And one of the benefits of the community consultation transcript undertook was to recognise this issue and work with local communities. We've been working with them to try and get uh, a method of benefit sharing for people who have to host the transmission. The third point, I've said consultation, compensation. The third is location. 
I mean, at the moment, yes, uh, I think, Rika, you pointed out that these are all going right in, or it might have been Linda, it's going where there are power lines now. I don't think that's the best location. They are taking up a lot of valuable agricultural land. It's arable land. Uh, we have an issue on this planet about food production. Australia has an issue about food production. We have land that's not ideally suited for food production, that's more scarcely grazed, that would be very suitable for panels. And yet, because of the location of the current lines, uh, companies are coming in and seeking opportunities to use big quantities of arable land. I think that is a problem, particularly when there's an alternative. Now, there's lots of issues about the impact of solar developments on, on communities, but one I want to point out is we don't know what it's going to do to the land. I have farmers here who say not only does it reduce production, and those pictures of sheep are a great overstatement of it, but they say we are concerned what will happen with dry land salinity. Because if you don't manage this land properly, and these farmers in the last four decades have learnt that they have to rotate vegetation, they have to get the mix of vegetation absolutely correct, otherwise the water table is a disaster. And they are really worried that a bunch of panels 25 years could sterilise the land. Now, look, I don't think the research is in on it. And who will be accountable in 10 or 15 years' time for that land? And in 25 years' time, who's going to rehabilitate the land? So um, I, I think there's a lot here to talk about. I think, can I just say, the report, and I've read a draft version of the report, but I think it's highlighted this as an important issue and exactly right, because we're at the at a point where this is going to take off and we need to get this right, otherwise we won't have a social licence. And as I think Linda pointed out right at the start, this is not a technical development. Our national electricity framework and market is set up as a technical exercise. This affects people. This transition is a social transition and uh, we need to get that right. Thank you very much, Joe. I think you've highlighted quite a significant number of issues that need to be addressed as we transition. So I'm going to turn back to uh, some of the authors of the report, uh, starting with Rebecca Pierce, who's a, a lecturer working jointly in the School of Sociology and the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University, who's published on um, carbon pricing in Australia. Rebecca, you are your task today with telling us a bit more about the social impact. So Joe's already given an indication of some of those issues. What, what are the findings of the report? Thanks, Susan, and, and, and thanks, Joe, for setting me up to share a few snippets of the findings of the social research we've done. Um, so the first um, theme I wanted to share is with regard to the overall um, support um, for renewable energy development that we got from our 45 interviewees plus others. So overall, um, uh, quotes like the first one here were fairly common. We, we had a council officer tell us, I'd say the overall impact has been hugely positive. The town's gone from quite stagnant to vibrant. Um, it, Digging into what that means for people, we found ourselves in a number of conversations about the significance of commercial activity associated with the build of wind and solar farms. Uh, for instance, the presence of mostly short-term construction workers in town um, was welcome in most places. Um, 
And there was appreciation for the small but significant numbers of long-term good quality jobs in renewable energy. So this bottom quote um, is, is another person in council uh, reflecting on an engineer moving to town, um, saying uh, that he's settled in that town with the family for the full-time job, people come in from elsewhere to work for a while and some of them fall in love with the place it's been hard to attract these sorts of people in the past. So there's a kind of sense that renewable energy can, can help attract uh, migration for good work um, and even small numbers of jobs can be important for smaller towns. Uh, but, of course, picking up on Joe's um, comments, there are differential impacts going on here. Like any development, renewable energy projects create different social impacts for different constituents this first quote, I'm sorry it's a bit small, um, it's from a community engagement officer working on one of the wind farms and they're reflecting on the wide range of community perspectives that need to be negotiated. They observe, you know, they're doing big box construction. It's hard for people to imagine. There are major earthworks and that can um, uh, be a shock to residents um, and, and lead to opposition and she goes on to reflect on the range of people that need to be engaged um, all the way from the beginning. And I take your point, Joe, that that has to keep going for the long run in terms of community engagement to really keep securing that social licence. So the, the other diff key differential impact relates to uh, land use change. This is one of the key points of discontent, as you've already heard. Um, we found for instance, that the early prospecting phase where companies approach landholders about potential sites can set the tone for better or worse with communities. Some landholders felt in the dark about negotiations. Um, uh, there was a sense that the neighbour payments were insufficient, particularly when we take that comparison to rent for hosting turbines and other infrastructure that can be really significant and, as Joe points out, um, and one of our interviewees put it, they can be drought-proofing sources of, of income. Another point on inequality um, that's raised in our report is that these renewable energy zones have a high proportion of First Nations residents compared to the state average, and we found need for much more work on consulting and providing opportunities for this group, which brings me to the policy challenges that we cover in the report. These renewable energy zones and the projects within them are commercial developments, as we've already discussed here. Um, the patterns of differential economic gain and divisions over that are, you know, unavoidable. Um, this is a new industry growing at pace. It, it requires concentrated land development in some of the popu most populous and more productive areas of the state. And our um, research is really highlighting the need to put equity and sustained fair economic development at the heart of policy for rural um, Australia as we uh, transition to renewable energy. Uh, so we, we focus in on um, equity for different constituencies in this process with the key issues being citing the careful sequencing of projects um, to minimise disruptions, um, 
and, and to maximise the benefits of that indirect commercial activity. Obviously, all levels of government are needed for this careful coordination, but we advocate particularly for the role of local councils and local civil society in carefully planning equitable rollout of this development. Um, and finally, the report ends on going beyond the build in thinking about a strategy for sustained contributions to rural Australia through renewable energy. Um, I'll let Dan pick up there, but this comes out of some of the discussions we had, for instance, on the limitations of voluntary grants that corporations give to councils for sports teams and so on. We, we found ourselves um, talking to people about the need uh, for innovative ways to share the benefits. Um, and, and we looked at a number of case studies for, um, for instance, where CWP proposed potentially pooling regional funds to share the benefits more widely. This is also supported by NGOs like RE Alliance. Um, and AGL has an interesting electrical apprenticeship program as part of one of their proposals. So I'll leave that um, there for Dan to follow up on in, in terms of where we went with policy recommendations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Beck. Um, this really uh, leads us directly into to Dan Cass's um, discussion. Uh, so Dan Cass leads electricity reform research at the Australia Institute. He's a senior advisor to the Clean Energy Investor Group and a research affiliate at the University of Sydney Business School. So Dan, you're going to talk us through what some of the key policy proposals coming out of the report are, including this idea of regional benefit sharing. So over to you. Great. Thank you, Susan and speakers and to the Sydney Environment Institute. So look, I thought I'd respond actually um, directly to Dr. Joe McGurr. And I think it's great that you and your constituents are being um, loud about the issue and making demands because New South Wales is at the cutting edge of this national policy. And we need to do a really good job. It's a once in a generation infrastructure investment. Um, uh, for the good of the whole community. And I really like your uh, summary of consultation, compensation and uh, location being the key issues. I think we strongly share that. So it's all moving at pace. And I'll just step back a little bit. And I think, you know, from the helicopter view, uh, it, it reminds me of a piece, Chris Wright, that you, you wrote with me a while ago about the problem of relying on laissez-faire market designs and ideologies in government to plan this energy transition. And of course, it's a it's a schlamozzle. We need a strong hand of government. We need it now. And I think in some ways after the experience of COVID in the last couple of years, there's probably an appetite in the community to see government stepping in and really taking charge and directing the process. And then, of course, firms can come in with rivalry and competition and innovation, and that's their role to bring down costs and come up with new ideas and models and technologies. But really we need the government to steer this. So, you know, the scenario is coal is leaving we need to build renewables. We need to build them fast. The res policy is a good one. And, uh, uh, you know, New South Wales is at, at the cutting edge of it. I think for people trying to understand why the spatial shift is so important and what it means and what the planning piece is, is in the past, energy was, was um, the energy system was fairly stable. So there wasn't much building of transmission, for example. Once you've built the big coal generators in the coal, um, regions like the Hunter in New South Wales or 
the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, it was a kind of steady state. What we're embarking on with the integrated system plan, which is that national roadmap, is to build about 10,000 kilometres of transmission. So if we do that in a, a decade, that's about three kilometres a day. That's huge. And I don't want to scare people. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's a once-in-generation opportunity to bring great economic benefits to the regions in New South Wales and in the other states. But we have to do it well, and we do need to consult the whole time from the beginning and all the way through. And the point about the transmission is once the transmission is built, the loops are built around a renewable energy zone, that's like the master plan. It sets the pattern then. It decides where the solar and the wind and the storage projects will then come because, of course, the projects will come once the transmission is built. So I think it's incredibly important just at the beginning to help communities understand what this kind of helicopter view is of the energy transition, moving all this generation into the regions and building it around these transmission lines. So they're not just a, an engineering question, they're a social and economic question. So I think setting the pattern right by getting the transmission built in the right area is crucial. And then, uh, you know, as, as Dr. Joe pointed out, maximising the economic opportunities. In our report, we highlight uh, the issue of First Nations participation, and there are good government policies around procurement from First Nations uh, businesses, but we think this, again, is something really worth doing well and comprehensively from the beginning because this will be, you know, perhaps $100 billion worth of infrastructure built out over about a decade around the country. It would be great to see that shared equitably across the community, including the First Nations communities that, you know, have energy companies and so on starting up and who can see already that there's a there's a potential for a really sustainable economic um, opportunity here for their communities in clean energy. And then thirdly, sharing benefits from uh, the transmission and generation to the hosts and to the neighbours and also this idea that I think, Beck, you flagged of pooling community funds, which we think is a great idea. So in New South Wales, the government has estimated that the first three reses in that state might produce revenue of income in community funds of about $124 million over a decade. That's obviously huge. We don't want to just spend that in small amounts buying, um, you know, soccer boots and men's sheds. There's only so many men's sheds you, you need in central West Arana <laughs> on New England. So we really love this idea because I think it steps up to the level of the challenge presented by this energy transition. If you could pull tens of millions of dollars worth of funds in communities and then have some good deliberative process to work out where best to spend them, you could build some really exciting social and environmental infrastructure that would be there for generations. And, you know, you might even find then your active local members such as on this call might talk to the government and see about co-investment strategies where government might then come to the table with communities around some of these potentially really significant projects. So, look, I, I might end there. I think I could talk all day. It's such an important issue. And, again, just thank you to the two members of parliament in particular for all your great advocacy on the issue and for being here today because it's it's really complex. We're in the weeds. Um, but, at, you know, as I keep saying, it's, it's, it's so exciting. It's a once-in-generation opportunity to get this investment really, um, really done well. So thank you.
And thank you, Dan. I think you're absolutely right. You are talking about, we are talking about once in a generation change, giving us an opportunity, but also recognizing there's a lot of difficulties here that we have to work through. So we have a lot of questions in the chat and it's wonderful to see the engagement here. But I want to turn now to Alex Greenwich, who is the independent member for Sydney in the New South Wales Parliament. Um, he was first elected in 2012 and is committed to working for a livable, sustainable and progressive Sydney for all. Alex, what, what's your view on the report and, and your concerns? Uh, well, uh, firstly, uh, thank you to everyone for joining us and thank you to the Sydney Environment Institute and the Australian Institute for the important work you're doing in, in this space. Uh, to give some context to, 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 to my answer to your question, uh, Susan, the, the three independents in the New South Wales Parliament, myself, Joe McGurr and Greg Piper, went to the last state election with a policy of having a just transition authority. Um, we've largely succeeded in that, um, although it, you know we, we've got all the elements of one, it's just not all packaged together, essentially. Um, and the three of us took that approach because um, you know, my electorate of, of inner Sydney um, is really focused on action on climate change, reducing emissions, uh, investing in renewables for our energy security and for price reduction. Um, those issues are really also important to, to Greg Piper. His electorate of Lake Macquarie is in the Hunter region, an area which is really dependent um, on, on coal for, for jobs in the economy. Um, and, you know, obviously action on climate change is really important for, for Joe's electorate, but as we're seeing, that's where a lot of renewables infrastructure is um, is is being planned or, or or built, and there have been some issues there. So I guess the three independents um, want to see uh, a transition to renewables, but we want it to be done well. We don't want the renewable sector to make the same uh, mistakes as coal did, and you know come in with a very big hand approach. Um, and you just you can you know go back and see so many communities destroyed by large-scale coal mines, open-cut coal mines, etc. So I guess where we where we come from on this is just as we need a just transition out of coal to renewables, we also need a just transition um, uh, to to renewables for those communities that are impacted. Um, Sadly, too often in Australian politics, when it comes to energy policy, communities and impacts on those communities are being left out. Um, and I think that's one of the key reasons why we have moved so slowly on a greater investment and a focus on renewables, um, because assurances around the uh, protection of jobs and diversification of economies in coal-dependent regions uh, we're not at the forefront of, of the discussion um, in those communities uh, about renewables. Um, and now we don't want that same mistake to happen now that we've got this great investment, this legislative framework. We don't want a political fight about saying no to renewables because it has not been handled well. Um, so this report is, is it injects some really important honesty into this process, which we need. Um, you know, uh, when when Dan was talking, he put up the, the the you know the really important landmark legislation, the electricity um, uh, infrastructure investment bill. Joe and I had to get that bill amended multiple times to insert community and consultation 
into that legislation. It was something that was largely forgotten in, in a real and practical way. Um, so we just have, if we, if we want renewables to be a sustainable part of our energy mix, um, and by we, we need to make sure that it is socially sustainable. And that means working with communities, sharing the benefits, consulting appropriately, um, not just having a, a bulldozer approach to the rollout of, of renewables. So we all want, and we're all, mo I'm motivated, um, uh, you know, in my community, we probably won't have too much renewables infrastructure within, in a city, maybe some <laughs> rooftop solar panels, um, but we want this to be sustainable into the future. Uh, and just as that means when we're getting, when we're, when we're um, you know, transitioning out of coal, we've got to take those communities with us, just as we, now that we are transitioning to renewables, we must take those communities with us as well. Thank you very much, Alex. So I think you've uh, highlighted a number of concerns for us. We're going to move now to Chris Wright, who's a professor of organisational studies at the University of Sydney Business School, who's published extensively, uh, extensively on the history of management, management consultancy, the labour process, the changing nature of human resource management, and of course, climate change in Australia. Chris, um, can you give us a, a sort of overall summary of the report? I mean, we are clearly talking about a report that's done an extensive investigation uh, into communities and how they are grappling with this transition. Yeah, thanks, Susan, and, and thanks, everybody. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear uh, the findings of the report. Well done to the researchers and also hear the reactions from the independent parliamentarians about their own experiences. Uh, and I, I guess to, to wrap up, I mean, there's a couple of things that really jumped out at me. The first is to sort of make a nod to this general point. I think Naomi Klein highlighted that, you know, climate change changes everything and energy in particular is one area that is changing hugely. And as Dan pointed out, we're sort of living through really an epochal um, process of change in energy production. Uh, and the, the thing I guess that jumps out at me is that in the political debates and the public debates about climate change and energy, how we get our energy and where our energy comes from and where we're going to get it in the future has been completely absent from, from popular discussion. It's just sort of been assumed we turn on the lights and energy's there. And as we've discovered in the last few days, uh, it's a little bit more complex than that. So this whole issue of the rapid energy transition that we're now living through, and I thought Rika's slides were marvellous in highlighting both the, the huge changes in location and also the changes in the, the, the companies that are producing this energy into the future. Um, that's really been hidden from, from public discussion and it still is, I think, and that's critical that we need to sort of communicate the process of change that's going on and the huge implications that has for communities, um, not just in the big urban centres, but obviously in, in rural parts of Australia where a lot of this new energy is going to be located. So uh, I really like Joe's um, distinction between the need for um, consultation, compensation and location. And I think one of the comments in the, in the chat there and the questions was uh, the role of planning as well. And again, um, reflecting on something that Dan mentioned in the discussion, what really strikes me in a lot of the discussion about a just transition in Australia from fossil fuel energy to renewables is that uh, there's a complete, uh, our politics is basically broken, I'd argue. Uh, we rely on this very neoliberal vision of, well, we rely on market forces and big multinational corporations to come in and stuff will happen. And missing from all of that is the, the need to sort of involve 
communities and in in that in that process. And I reflect back on um, the period in the early 80s that I lived through, the Accord period of industrial change, uh, where there was a much stronger emphasis upon tripartitism and consultation and bringing everybody to the table. And it wasn't just leave it up to market forces. Um, there was a strong element of centralised political sort of planning around how that change is going to roll out. Now, it wasn't particularly done well necessarily in that accord period for particular industries and communities, but at least there was an acknowledgement that government needed to lead the process, bring industry, unions, communities on board to have a discussion about how that change would roll out and what it would look like. And we don't have that at the moment. I think we really need that if we're talking about the future of the Hunter, the Trobe, the future of the Central Western New England. Uh, there needs to be much more involvement of communities as a right in the, as, as those parties having a right to discussion in that process. Uh, another thing that hasn't really been talked about much, I guess, is community ownership. Uh, and community ownership around renewables and how that might be facilitated because at the moment it looks like it's the big end of town, big multinational companies. Uh, and I know I'm going a little bit over time, but, but one other point I just sort of raise here is that this whole social licence thing, it's, it's not just um, a risk to businesses in the short term, it's an upside opportunity. And if you can get the the social ownership license right, those communities then become very powerful allies um, for you as, as a business in terms of the longer term, the longevity of that, that business model. I know there's been discussion, a lot of these firms are sort of buying and selling and they don't really have a long-term commitment necessarily, but you could foresee as the industry shakes out and there's greater concentration, there will be a, a longer-term sort of commitment to energy production. And you really need the communities on site as your crucial allies, partners in that process of energy production. So there's some initial sort of overview thoughts. I thought it's fantastic. A lot of these ideas are really critical to the future of the country and where we're going with energy production. And it'd be great if federal and state governments could really prioritise these sort of concerns. Thank you so much, Chris. I think you're absolutely right. One of the key issues here is engaging with communities. And I want to go now to question and answer. So some fabulous comments and discussions, both in the Q&A and in the chat. But I want to go to uh, Carolyn Wenzel's question, and maybe, Linda, you can answer this, um, which is, uh, you know, a number of concerns in the chat are around community engagement. And Carolyn's asking if there are any best practice examples that you have found showing renewable energy companies that are actually working collaboratively with communities. Uh, and is there a way for measuring the economic and environmental benefits to, renewable, uh, to rural communities from these renewable energy energy projects. Linda? Yeah, look, uh, thanks, Carolyn, for your question. On that important point of um, measurement of benefits to rural communities, no, we're not doing that. It's well beyond uh, the scope of our study, but we do recommend that it should be done. Uh, a lot of claims and promises are made about benefits by companies and governments, jobs, cheaper energy, energy security, better services and facilities, more business opportunities, and so on. But there is no systematic way in which outcomes are measured, and this needs to be part of the evaluation of projects and of the whole RES model as well. Um, we've also written up best practice examples in our report. I don't have time, but you can look at, at, at Chapter 8 especially. But just to mention too, Sapphire Wind Farm has a community co-investment scheme. Residents in designated postcodes bought shares in the project, 
with guaranteed minimum return, very popular. And the other one, just briefly, the White Rock Wind Farm Business Participation Program, a program of supporting procurement of goods and services from local uh, from local business, but more importantly, developing their capacity to supply. Thank you very much for that, Linda. Uh, I want to go now to another question this time from Sally Hunter, and maybe I can direct this towards you, Rika, but anyone else is also invited to contribute. Sally's asking if we can think about how um, how we think about those that are inside the renewable energy zone versus those that are not. Um, is there a way for understanding, um, you know, why some of these um, renewable energy um, uh, projects will be there and not elsewhere? And I think this is a broader concern that is coming through the chat about sort of haves versus have-nots, you know, who who is making those decisions and, and is there a way of understanding it? Um, yeah, thanks, Sally, for that question. Very big question. Um, let's try to dabble on a little bit and, and yeah, everyone else can add on. Um, but I guess a lot of the things that we talk about in the report and a lot of the things that we as, as researchers sort of found is um, maybe it doesn't have to be um, like just for resi. So good engagement is good engagement and everyone should be doing good engagement. And, and that should be um, sort of talked about. People should whether you are in a rest or outside a rest, keep noise that, well, this is what we want, this is what we need. Um, expecting benefit sharing, whether you are inside of a rest or outside a rest, is something that definitely needs to happen. Um, where the reses are is, I guess, a bit more complicated question, has a lot of technical aspects. So I think we could have a whole webinar just on that. Um, but I guess um, it's, again, if that's something that people want, keeping noise about that as well, that well, we actually want more support for us in, in these, these regions and, and we would like to have more capacity in our transmission in here. We need a different sort of scheme. Keeping noise about that as well is, I guess, what I think. Look, uh, the, my region is not in a res. I have a res located west of here, but where the solar developments are taking place here, and the transmission lines for HumeLink, it's not in a res. Uh, now, the reses have built into them, as Alex has pointed out, uh, thanks to our intervention, have a, a number of safeguards around or attempts to safeguard community involvement. I mean, and that is good. We don't know how they're going to work, but I think it's a response to the fact that extraordinarily in the current system, and Dan, Dan made this point, in the current system, we have a national electricity market that no one really... Your average punter doesn't really understand. I didn't understand it until I got involved in this as a member of parliament. And it's extraordinarily complicated. Ironically, it is deeply divorced from government. It's almost at arm's length from government. It's run by technicians and it's only linked to the consumer. It's only linked to the community is a concern about what the consumer will pay. That's how it's set up. Uh, so I think it was in response to that, the reses developed that capacity for community engagement but we don't know how that's going to work and I'm in a region that doesn't even have a res and so there's very little apart from constant advocacy um, and, and, and look I think uh, so, so that worries me the absence of government worries me um, the fact that communities feel like government doesn't have their back and I have to say Dan's point about you know we're really uh, in the grip of a laissez-faire neoliberal let the market rip nightmare. 
Um, it could go badly wrong if we don't bring the community with us. Um, and ironically, we're right at the start of it. Multiple companies uh, are coming into play. They, they clearly want to build, make profits and go. Now, and I, I just do want to make another point about um, community benefits as well. I mean, the income that landholders will get from some solar developments is quite extraordinary. They're talking about, I'm getting figures of 1000 to $1,500 a hectare. So basically, 600 hectares, million dollars a year, do nothing. That's it, 25 years. Those companies will talk about community grants of 5000 You know, I mean, if we're really talking about benefit sharing, there needs to be compensation for neighbours and there needs to be a genuine investment in community infrastructure. A lot of these companies are going to be taking up housing. Uh, they're going to have big impact on local economies with workers who move around. They will disrupt housing in our communities. And there won't be, in my view, there won't be long-term jobs, particularly with solar developments. Very, very few long-term jobs. So range of issues there. Just wanted to get in on that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. Uh, Dan, I'd like to go to you now because uh, Xavier's got a question that I think follows on directly from this, which is how can the government support communities in terms of ownership of renewable energy projects? Yeah, great question. Look, I'll go to that in a sec because I, I was on the board of a community-owned wind farm and I, I, it's, a, it's a passion, but I thought I'd just circle back and, and just um, point out, Alex, you know, I think the leadership that you and the independents have shown and the committee that you chaired in New South Wales are really critical. And just hearing the questions and doing media interviews today, it just strikes me that I think the point, Joe, you made about how the energy regulatory system is very, it's meant to be arm's length from government, a bit like the Reserve Bank. You have independent regulators making decisions. But the heuristic is just this very narrow economic rationalist consumer cost and price issue that obviously is nowhere near enough. And I think, you know, I mean, Alex and Joe, the fantastic work that you've done shows, I think, the value of parliamentary scrutiny here. So just a brief sort of segue into that. I think, you know, the new government in Canberra is committed to climate action within a certain envelope. They've promised $20 billion to turbocharge the ISP, really, and other kind of uh, res and outside of res development, which, of course, on paper is a great thing. But, you know, I suspect your role will be really critical. And, you know, I'd hope that you can partly mentor the independents that have got elected in the federal parliament and help them, I think, emulate some of the success you've had with the, you know, with the treasurer's legislation and the roadmap in New South Wales, where I think you've had a huge impact. And, you know, now is really the rubber hits the road, 2022. So, I, you know, I'd really hope that you, you know, you kind of can help the, your your national colleagues in the national parliament take a holistic view of this transition so that we're not just stuck counting for dollars and cents and then possibly leaving communities behind. So a brief ad and add or lobbying exercise for you and your, your really great work. Uh, community ownership, I think, is fantastic. Um, if you look to the United States, you know, half the country has community-owned um, energy to electricity utilities from back in the, the, the New Deal under Roosevelt. So, you know, community ownership can happen at a, at a huge scale and it's certainly the case in Denmark and Germany to an extent where community-owned uh, generation is a big thing. I was on the board of Hepburn Wind uh, for a few years a while ago and we built a, a, a small wind farm, two turbines near the, the village of Dalesford in central Victoria 
it's incredibly valuable. It's empowering. It helps a community understand energy infrastructure. And critically, I think it leverages, you know, maybe a tradition that's got a bit weaker in Australia where, you know, regional communities and farming communities used to have a lot of community ownership in, you know, their supply chain and so on. And there's no reason energy couldn't be that. I mean, there's no reason that communities can't really partner with the infrastructure developers and the tech companies to co-own this. So, I mean, I would love to see more of it. I think it's a great question and an incredibly useful way of bringing together that, I guess, that holistic view of what this transition is for and how we can all share the benefits and manage it properly. Thank you. Um, one final question because we're running out of time. So it's kind of a, an amalgamation of many people's concerns in the, in the chat and in the questions about the impact of potentially contamination from solar panels, the impact of biodiversity, and whether or not we need to strengthen the processes for including a, in the development application systems for decommissioning and land maintenance. Is there anyone on the panel that would like to speak to this very big concern? We, did, we didn't quite skip forward to that, to the decommissioning end, but look, it's vital, and I think there's a huge national conversation to be had now about the legacy infrastructure that the offshore petroleum industry has left us, courtesy of some unbelievably weak regulation and policy from both sides of politics federally, unfortunately, um, where uh, you know we're about to embark on building renewable energy at, at, in the sea in the, in the continental shelf, which I think is a fantastic thing. So, yes, I think it's a great question. How do we? Uh, plan and 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 manage rehabilitation of all of Australia's energy infrastructure from the the tens of thousands of mines that have never been rehabilitated across the country, uh, courtesy of, uh, according to research conducted by my colleagues at the Australia Institute, and then looking right forward to the offshore infrastructure and the onshore wind and solar. I think it's a- absolutely important. Not putting my hand up to do another report just now, but uh, yes, a topic to reconsider for sure. And, and, and Dan, a topic of concern, particularly in my area, and we just cannot outsource this responsibility to the market. The government can't outsource its responsibility here for strong regulation to the market. The players in this space are going to change. Yes, they may consolidate. We don't know who will end up with it in 10 or 15 years' time, but you can bet your bottom dollar no-one will want to pay for the rehab or look after stuff. It'll be hard to sell assets that are run down if the land is wrecked. And so getting that regulation and scrutiny right at the outset is critical. And at the moment, uh, I'm not confident we've got that actually in New South Wales. I think we've got a pretty weak regulatory regime. We've got some draft guidelines on large renewable developments that are still draft. We've got an agriculture commissioner who's doing a report. In the meantime, Developments are just moving on a pace. And uh, I think government has really got a role here. So thanks for making that point. I think it's critical. And I'll just say uh, quickly, you know, the appropriate planning controls are critical in the sustainability of, of renewables infrastructure. Um, but we can't forget that. Uh, and this has to be a really important issue come the next state election. Planning laws are the responsibility of state governments. Um, too often they are watered down to promote uh, you know, short-term profits over longer-term uh, sustainability. Um, so we, we've got to make sure we, we keep a, a really close eye on that and strengthen the planning controls in this regard. 
So unfortunately, we've run out of time. I'd like to thank everyone from all of the authors to our two members of parliament, to everyone in the audience who has also contributed some wonderful um, publications and research in the links. The report uh, that is being launched today that is the focus of this discussion uh, is in the um, is also linked in the chat. Do feel free to download that. And my dog's barking, so that's really the end of it. And thank you very much. And please, if you do enjoy this, uh, please look at the Sydney Environment Institute website for more events and more podcasts um, entirely on the lines of uh, communities on the front line. So thank you very much and have a good afternoon.